0: sequence star Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good.
2: Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Space Nuts podcast, episode 212, all about uh, astronomy and space science. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and with me again is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Good uh, good day, Andrew. How are you? (laughs) I am well, sir. How are you?
3: I'm good, thanks. I nearly said good morning, which... You know, it might not be appropriate sometimes that people are listening to this podcast. So
2: anyway. That's that's the thing about uh, podcasting. People could be listening at any time on any day. So you, you've got to be a bit generic about your um, about your hellos. Mm, yeah. <laughs> can, can so prove, generic, uh, a generic hello from me. <laughs> yes, fraught with danger being specific. Yeah. But we'll manage. I'm sure we'll manage. Uh, now, um, before we get into these uh, these topics, today's topics, Fred, um, we we do want to mention that we've uh, we've received a raft of questions, uh, text and audio, and we are going to uh, in the very we haven't done this for a long time. We are going to in the very near future do an entire episode dedicated to questions. So, uh, if you've got a question you want to throw at us in the next week or two, um, yes, please uh, please send it through and uh, we'll try and add it to the mix. But we're thinking episode 215 will be all questions, all audience questions, your chance to unravel the mysteries of the universe courtesy of Fred. (laughs) Now, uh, today we're going to talk about a launch that happened the other day. I actually watched this live, although I must uh, laugh um, a little at the network that showed it because the commentators basically didn't know what they were looking at. Because uh, they were just in a TV studio, and the um, the, the host said to the uh, supposed expert, "What's happening?" He said, "I don't know." And and they were talking about the water spraying underneath the um, the burners, which is obviously to douse the flames and reduce the amount of refuse flying into the air, all that sort of th- thing. And uh, they had no idea what was going on. So and and as soon as the thing got off the ground, they they cut to a a promo. So we never actually got to. <laughs> Never got to see the thing get up in the air, uh, no. uh, What's but anyway, the wrong channel Andrew. I, I clearly was, yeah, um, but one- it, this 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 was a space launch um, by the United Arab Emirates. Not usually a country you'd associate with space exploration, but they're off to Mars. We'll talk about that. We're also going to look at uh, Venus again, but for a very very different reason this time. It's starting to be thought that it might still be volcanically active. Can you imagine that? We'll also be answering questions. We've got one from Bobby Jim Ascot about uh, a teroscope. and Peter from Sunderland is uh, asking a question of, uh, you know, if Einstein was alive today, we'll get to what he wants to talk about um, a little later in uh, the program today. But uh, first, Fred, the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, a country I have had the pleasure of visiting. What an amazing place. It's sort of like a, um, um, it's sort of like, I don't know, Las Vegas without casinos. It would be the way I'd describe it. Very elaborate, very ornate, just no slot machines. But uh, fascinating place. But they've just launched a mission to Mars. Uh, exactly. And um, it, this is
3: the first, Andrew, of, of probably three Mars launches this month uh, because we're in Mars season. We're in that, uh, that uh, period in the orbital dance between Mars and the Earth where you've got the shortest travel time between the two. Uh, so launches uh, this month and next month, uh, well, they, they, they've got the, you know, the, the, the most energy-efficient route to the planet Mars. Hope has been first off the block, um, the UAE's uh, orbital spacecraft. Uh, We expect the next one to be a Chinese spacecraft and the one after that to be NASA's Perseverance, uh, the rover that's going to look for signs of life on Mars. So hopefully you and I will talk about all of those down the track. But for the moment, uh, the one that is already on its way Hope, uh, which was launched on Monday, as you said, from the Tanegashima Space Center in Japan. Uh, it, I was delighted that it went to sp- uh, Hope went to space on board a Mitsubishi, uh,
2: which is what I drive. So there you are. Oh, I used to drive a Mitsubishi. Uh, in, well, they're claiming it's the Mitsubishi Heavy Industries H2A rocket, but it was, in fact, the Burj Khalifa. <laughs>
3: um, mine isn't the H2A rocket, but it gets me around all right, I can tell you. So, yes, it's a it's a well-proven launch uh, vehicle, actually, the, the Mitsubishi H2A. Um, I think it's got a track record of... You know, more, something like 40, 40, spacecraft, uh, 40 satellite launches. Um, so uh, that, of course, uh, reveals straight away that there is a, a strong connection between the United Arab Emirates Space Agency and the uh, JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency. Uh, the, these two organizations have worked uh, together on this project. And actually, that's one of the perhaps one of the characterising features of HOPE in that there is broad international collaboration. The University of Colorado in the USA has been responsible for some of the instruments that HOPE uh, is carrying to Mars. Um, really interesting project, and with a ne- you know the name kind of tells it all uh, amal is the Arabic word, uh, but hope um, is, is is a lot of it is about international collaboration it 's about inspiring people it 's about inspiring the arab world generally because uh, it is the first um, mission to another planet from the Arab world. Uh, so a lot going for it um, in terms of education and STEM and all those other things in UAE. This is bound to uh, to work wonders. Um, UAE, just by the way, is not a stranger to space travel, though, because they one of their astronauts actually flew on the International Space Station last year, um, uh, uh, an, an Arabic astronaut, and, and that was very successful. I think it was a fairly short trip. Uh, but uh, there is, you know, it's a very active organisation, the the UAE Space Agency. So the launch was flawless. Um, I know what you mean about the the talking heads. Uh, on the channel there were a number of different channels uh, that you could watch that on one of them everything was in arabic so i gave that one a miss there was another in english which i suspect is what you watched but the one to watch was the one without commentary which actually showed all the details of the launch uh, so we could see the rocket lifting off and on its way um, almost you know uh, uh, I mean, it was perfect conditions and a very, very fine launch. We saw all the features of a launch the, as the vehicle went through uh, its maximum dynamic pressure. It, Form clouds around its, its nose uh, and um, uh, and the, the boosters separating. We, we couldn't see uh, the second stage separation. That was too far down range. But uh, uh, as far as I know, a flawless launch. And to the best of my knowledge, Andrew, uh, to wrap this up, sorry, I've talked a lot. Uh, but to the best of my knowledge, the uh, the mission is um,
2: as we say in the in the game, it is nominal at the moment it is nominal, yes, it is nominal. Uh, I do have a question about this mission yeah um, what what is the aim of the mission? I assume because it 's called hope that that the, the mission 's aim is not that they hope they find mars <laughs> i 'm pretty sure they will yes, exactly. but why are they going there um,
3: yeah that 's a great question actually i 'm really glad you asked it because the um This is not just you know doing the same sort of thing over again uh so there is a specific um scientific area of uh, of understanding that hope is is designed to look at um, and it's particularly the interaction between mars's lower and upper atmosphere uh which is a fairly poorly understood. Uh, system. We we know quite a lot about Mars's lower atmosphere from the rovers down there on the surface. We know quite a lot about Mars's upper atmosphere from spacecraft like MARVIN or MAVEN, depending on how you want to pronounce it, which is uh, in orbit around Mars at present. But HOPE is designed specifically to look at how these two uh, behave. Uh, it's got three scientific instruments on board, um, basically, one is a high-resolution imager, so it will be looking at cloud formation. Uh, it will be also looking at the surface, of course, um, and then two spectrometers to look at the, uh, the, the the elements in the atmosphere. One in the ultraviolet, one in the infrared. Uh, so very specific questions that we hope will be answered by by Hope. It, it dovetails very nicely into the you know into the flotilla of spacecraft that have already gone to Mars uh, in terms of its scientific mission. And just one final thing, um, assuming this uh, this mission is successful, um, it will be the fifth, uh, will make UAE uh, the fifth spacefaring nation to reach Mars. Uh, I'm just trying to remember what the others are. NASA, of course, Russia, uh, India, and I think China is the other one. Uh, and Gray will be fifth.
2: I'm, I'm kind of glad that they're going up there to do an atmospheric analysis because if they were going there to check out the topography, they've spent a lot of money to do something that they could do by just walking outside.
3: <laughs> yes, exactly.
2: <laughs> but they've also, um, you know, the topography is well understood
3: now from all these radar missions that we've had. So, yeah, it's a, it, uh, yeah. It's a great, you know, it's a great venture.
2: Indeed, and we wish them well, and uh, can't wait to see how they um, how that mission goes. And, and once we get some feedback from whatever it is they discover, we'll uh, we'll let you know. the The other thing, and I think I've mentioned this before, Fred, but the other thing I like so much about these kinds of missions is how it brings nations together. You did talk about the UAE and JAXA getting together, but you, you see collaborations between the US and China, and the US and Russia, and. Um, it sort of um, is a, a unification that 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 occurs at at this level. Uh, aside from the, the the down, you know, the, the nastiness of politics at times. You've got at the moment the, the the political clashes going on between the U.S. and and China, and yet um, they're more likely to collaborate. In space than they are in in the in the boardrooms of uh, of um, political um, you know, at, at the political table. So I, I think uh, astronomy and space exploration and and th- those kinds of things are actually doing a lot more good than than people give it credit for. Sometimes uh, I agree with that, Andrew. And
3: um, yeah, space as it should do. Space unifies us all because we we realise that we are, you know, we're all travellers on a spacecraft called Earth and we've got to look after it and work together to, to, to make um, the world and space
2: too perhaps a better place. <clears throat> yes, and we'll all soon look more like space travellers soon when we start wearing masks. Yes, <laughs> 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 You're listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and team with a go. Space Nuts. Thanks for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast and hello to our YouTube subscribers. We're building up quite a number of YouTube followers and that's resulting in a lot of downloads. Now, apparently, we're averaging about 3,000 downloads a month on YouTube, which is fantastic. Uh, But, you know, as always, our producer has come to me and said, we need (laughs) 4,000. I said, why? He said, because... So um, we, we need to get another 1,000 downloads a month on YouTube. Um, but, you know, I'll leave, I'll leave the science up to him. But uh, if you uh, are a YouTube user or subscriber and you'd like to follow us on our YouTube channel, you can do that at youtube.com slash C slash Space Nuts, youtube.com slash C slash Space Space Nuts, and uh, that's just one of the many platforms you'll find us on. Now, Fred, let's uh, continue our foray into uh, space, and we're headed uh, not to Mars this time, but we're back to Venus, which we talked about last week with that, uh, that upcoming mission, uh, which is going to do some deep penetration radar imaging of, um, of the hottest planet Uh, one of the hottest planets that we know of in our vicinity. And uh, now we're starting to think that um, the volcanoes or some of the volcanoes on Venus might still have a little bit of pep in them. Is that the case? Uh,
3: Indeed, that's right. So this is um, quite exciting research. It's um, very good that we're seeing this sort of thing being published, um, you know, in advance of possible upcoming Venus missions, because the, 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 it sets the scene in a way. It sets the scene as to the questions that we might ask on a, on a future Venus mission. So uh, what this is about is uh, essentially a reanalysis, Andrew, of um, some of the radar imagery that came back from Venus, Back in the 1990s, actually, this is from the Magellan spacecraft. Uh, This is long before Space Nuts podcast, so you and I didn't particularly talk about this. But Magellan was equipped with radar uh, and um, basically mapped the surface of Venus for the first time, because, of course, Venus has this thick, poisonous atmosphere that we can't penetrate. Um, uh, uh, at least under under normal circumstances certainly with visible light you you do get nearer the bottom with infrared but even then it's it's not giving us any idea of what the surface is like radar is the only way to do it so um a group of scientists in the united states have uh, trawled through the magellan data and what they're looking for specifically is some features which are that they're ring-like structures on the surface of Venus, they're called coronae, and coronae being the plural of corona, uh, which of course means crown. And these days, our minds immediately leap to the coronavirus when we think of that word. But this has nothing to do with virus. Mm. This is just the shape of these structures. They're crown-like structures, and the, the, the there's some understanding already of how these things are formed, uh, because uh, they're thought to be caused by um, hot spots underneath the surface of Venus. So it's a kind of upwelling of hot rock there. There's Gregory Peck, by the way, the, the rooster just joining in there. I don't know whether you caught him.
2: Is that from the vets next door? No. Oh, no, that's yours. It's
3: Marnie's, yeah,
2: that's right.
3: <laughs> Never mind. Gregory Peck. Gregory Peck, yeah. The, the um, So so you got the... Thank, thank you, Gregory. This <laughs> is just outside the door. Sorry about that. You know, oh, dear. Yeah. But we, we've got these um, uh, hot spots underneath the surface of Venus. Uh, and so you get upwelling, that's the technical term, stuff coming up through the mantle of Venus <laughs> um, and penetrating through the crust and giving you a volcano. Now, we know that Venus does not have plate tectonics. That seems to be an established fact among Venus watchers Um, and that means that um, a bit like the phenomenon on Mars where you've got these huge volcanoes because the hot spots uh, penetrated through the crust uh, and just kept on going through the same hole in the crust because nothing's moving there's no there's no plate tectonics so you get very large volcanoes now I think that is also true on Venus except that Venus is far more Volcanically active uh, than Mars ever was. Right? It has the most number of volcanoes of any body uh, in the solar system. So what they've done is they've looked at these corona, corona uh, structures. Uh, in fact, I think 133 of them have been examined in detail. And um, essentially, um, the, the details of the... Uh, the shape of these, and I should explain that it's kind of almost like a a, a ring formed with a trench-like structure around this volcanic plateau. Some of them are thousands of kilometres across. The bigger ones are typically 100 kilometres or so. But they also have um, these sort of radial fault lines in them as well, so there there are faults occurring too. And it's by looking at those structures that you can get an idea as to how long ago the activity ceased. And... Thank you, Gregory. The, 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 one of the um, um, work, basically, one of the authors of this work, um, somebody called Anna Gulcher, uh, has said Our work shows that some of the interior heat is still able to reach the surface even today. Venus is clearly not so geologically dead or dormant as previously thought. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> You're having a fun a fun night, a fun oh, day today. Fun is, uh, the, the last thing I I um, uh, was going to do before we went on air was put my phone on silent. <laughs>
2: so, anyway,
3: <laughs> and it's from somebody who should know better because she knows I'm, on, I'm doing the podcast. Oh, Hi. oh
2: dear. Hi, Marnie. Hello. No, it's
3: a... right. It's all right. All right. Yeah there you are everybody's joining in now so everyone in. so the um uh, yeah the the evidence seems to be um that uh of of the 133 coronae that have been investigated 37 seem to have been active and this is the the bottom line within the last 2 to 3 million years and of course that's very much the recent past in geological terms. Um, So uh, it's, um, yeah, it probably speaks volumes for the idea that Venus actually is volcanically active today. Uh, And what a thing, you know, that you can now sort of imagine beneath those layers of clouds, you can imagine smoking volcanoes doing their thing. Um, Yeah, amazing
0: stuff
2: Yeah, and, you know, I I find it um, fantastic that uh, we can reanalyse data from old missions and extrapolate more information from it, like uh, because we've got the the tools now that we may not have had 30 years ago or whatever, uh, we can reanalyse data from these old missions and get even more value out of them. I think that is is just an amazing step forward uh, for astronomy as well
3: yeah it it that's right with modern tools modern um you know modern uh software the, the kind of uh, um, analysis tools that we have these days, which certainly weren't around in the 1990s when Magellan was uh, was doing its thing. So really extraordinary stuff, Andrew, and um, and, and I think really interesting news as well uh, that we have yet one more volcanically active body in the solar system, along with yes. the Earth, along with the Earth and Jupiter's moon Io. Mm. Uh, and Titan too, isn't Titan active? It probably is, yeah. These are cryovolcanoes, that's
2: right. Maybe even Pluto as well. Yeah. Wow. Fantastic. Um, I, 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 are they able to be specific about where they think they are or they just think they are?
3: No, well, no, they're, these are well-identified uh, sites on, um, on, the, on the planet's surface. Um, apparently they, they form a sort of ring-like structure uh, all around funny that the pla- yeah, all around the planet's southern hemisphere. So, what you've got is this ring of these things in the planet's southern hemisphere. Apparently, the biggest is a corona called Artemis, which is 2,100 kilometers in diameter. It's colossal,
2: wow. that is amazing. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, not as big as Olympus Mons, I'm gathering. Uh, Olympus
3: Mons. actually, it's uh, is yes, it's a bit smaller than that. I think is Olympus Mons. That's a good
2: point. Should Oh, okay. Ooh, so it may no longer be the biggest but, but Olympus mountain is, in the solar system. Is the highest? Ah, uh... oh, highest, right, right. Gotcha. Mm. Okay. Uh, Well, we will watch with interest um, because uh, there may be more to discover and and certainly it will be helpful to know about these things, as you said, with future missions to to Venus so that they can uh, maybe take a look or if they're going to land something on the planet, which is always a haphazard thing to do, they know where not to go. But, um, yeah, it looks like uh, Venus has got a lot more to tell us than we thought 20, 30 years ago. You're listening to Space Nuts. Uh, We'll be back in a moment once Fred has gone and prepared a chicken for (laughs) dinner. Three, two,
1: one.
0: Space Nuts.
2: Well, I can tell you I'm not really sure of the fate of Gregory Peck, but uh, I suspect he's still at the door and still pecking, because that's what he does when you try and interfere with his uh, daily protocol, Fred tells me. Uh, By the way, if you are a um, a social media person, don't forget to join the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook, uh, where everybody who listens to Space Nuts can get together and chat to each other and ask each other questions and solve all the problems of the universe without uh, us having to do it for you which we don't tend to do anyway. Uh, There's also the Space Nuts um, Facebook page. Uh, You'll find us on Twitter. You'll find us on uh, all all sorts of platforms, social media platforms. So have a look for us and and say hi via your favourite one. And now, Fred, uh, it's time to answer some questions. And our first question comes from Bobby Jim Ascot. It's a very short and sweet question, but it is a really good question too. Hi, guys. Just wondering if Fred could talk about the recent idea of a terroscope the use of the Earth's atmosphere as a lens. And he goes on to say, magnificent. Uh, Now, I I believe there is some work being done in this area. There is a paper, yes, um, by an author
3: by the name of David Kipping, and that paper was published in. <laughs> <You> did... <laughs> was published in PASP, which you will recognise as being the publications of the Astronomical Society of the Pacific. It's a it's a, a journal that um, is a, a, a distinguished journal, certainly very reputable. Uh, often com- concentrates on, uh, solar system uh, studies. So what is this about? Um, we know that the Earth's atmosphere refracts or bends light, uh, and that actually um, is because it, it's essentially this this sphere of air which is which surrounds the Earth, and in many respects acts like a lens. We we can see the effect of it to some extent if you watch a sunset uh it's actually easier to do with a moonset or a moonrise because it's a lot easier on your eyes uh, and you don't have to use you know filters or anything um full moon <coughs> rising let's do it that way um often looks
2: um slightly squashed top to bottom and that is yeah i've noticed that when i've taken photos of full moons yeah. that it does Seem to be a little bit sort of egg shaped. That's right. When it's when it's very close to the horizon,
3: and that's because yeah, of, that's because of the refraction of the atmosphere. It's the atmosphere acting like a lens, uh, squashing it down. So um, what you can then ex- extend this idea to is looking at the whole Earth itself uh, from a distance in space and imagining the. Thin layer of atmosphere, basically behaving like a lens. So what you've got is a kind of natural telescope, um, and that's this paper by Kipping uh, is a, about exactly that. Um, so, so what? Uh, let me read a little bit from the abstract because that sort of explains what's going on. Distant starlight passing through the Earth's atmosphere is refracted by an angle of just over one degree near the surface. This focuses light onto a focal line, starting uh, at an inner boundary uh, out to infinity, offering an opportunity for pronounced lensing. And so, uh, what the author then goes on to do is to essentially just imagine <clears throat> what you know what you might learn from um, uh, using the Earth's atmosphere as a lens. Uh, it's it, it's and and the, and he's done this actually in the wavelength range from visible light out to far infrared uh, what we call 30 micron light um so the, the bottom line and coming right to the end of this um let me just read the last bit of the abstract uh what does he say um a telescope the the the, the telescope that he's is proposing is calculated to produce an amplification of 45000 uh, that's an increase in brightness uh, for a lensing timescale of 20 hours. I'm not quite sure what that means, can I read the paper? Um, in practice, the amplification is likely halved toward, to avoid daylight scattering, because that's one of the problems. Of course, the atmosphere is bright when it's being illuminated by the sun. So you, there's only seven times you can do this. So that comes down to 22,500. And uh, by that, so he's drawn the an analogue, that that is the equivalent to a 150 meter diameter optical telescope. Now, uh, that's all fine and dandy, uh, but you've got all kinds of problems to deal with if you're going to do this in practice, Uh, like um, arranging your detector so it's in the right place to look at the object that you're trying to see. You've got uh, the issues of decomp- what we call deconvolving the information because you're not getting a beautifully formed image like you would in a 150 meter optical telescope. You're getting this smeared out, uh, blurry thing that, um, with some uh, some you know uh, uh, numerical analysis, might actually give you some information. But it's it's uh, an interesting idea but seems to have limited practical value. And I think there is an an analogous thing that might actually be more effective, which is to use the Earth as a gravitational lens. Um, And that is not using the atmosphere to bend the light, but using the Earth's distortion of the space around it to bend the light beam coming from a distant object. Um, we, we, We use gravitational lenses all the time in in astronomy, um, the Earth's gravitational bending is not large, it's small, because it's a relatively small object. But if you're at a distance, now, the problem is, I can't remember how far away you've got to be to see the image formed by the Earth, but I've got a feeling it's about a light year, it's a long way away. Um, But I think you actually get better results from that, because you don't have to Cope with things like the atmosphere being bright, and you've got a, a, a effectively a bigger a bigger telescope. So that's just throwing in <clears throat> from a position of complete ignorance um, an alternative, uh, which I think is also quite exciting to use the Earth as a gravitational
2: lens. Yes, indeed. Uh, so it's it's uh, good theory at the moment, but practicality is a little bit needs a bit of work. Yeah, I think that's the
3: bottom line. Yep. <laughs>
2: yeah. Okay. There you go, Bobby. I hope that uh, answers your question, and thanks for sending it in to us. Uh, Now, Fred, we have an audio question, so uh, let's get down to it. Hi, it's Peter. I'm from Sunderland in the UK. just like to say, absolutely amazing show, the best podcast I listen to. Well done. Um, I'd just like to ask, if Einstein was alive today, what do you think the biggest mystery he would want to solve is? Thank you. Okay, uh, that was uh, for those who are having trouble with the accent. Peter from Sunderland in the UK. Our um, our translation software that we use when we receive an audio question uh, actually translated what Peter said to "Hi, I'm Peter from Cylinder in the UK. Dyslexia."
3: <laughs> well, look, <laughs>
2: no offence, Peter. It's it's just software.
3: Yeah, Andrew, but um, <clears throat> I. Yeah, I have to say that that software does its best, but um, when you get such a marvellous accent as Peter's... <laughs> why, Peter man, that's, oh, yeah. Peter, man, that's a canny accent you have there. Because <laughs> um, I used to live not very far from where Peter is. Peter's in Sunderland, which is on Wearside in the northeast of England. I lived uh, for several years and had a lot to do with uh, Tyneside, which is just a bit further north, but with a very similar... Very similar accent called Geordie. Uh, and it honestly, it did me, it really did me good to hear Peter's question when he came on. I thought that's taking me right back to
2: my roots, is that? So, a great question. Uh, uh, uh... Yes, indeed. Now, now, just in case people didn't quite catch what he asked, he said, if Einstein was alive today, what do you think the biggest mystery he would want to solve would be? Yeah. So. Yeah, that's a really interesting question.
3: And, you know, it's got an interesting answer too, Andrew, because my guess is that he would be fixated now on exactly the problem that occupied the last 20 or 30 years of his life, which is trying to unify relativity and quantum theory. Um, Relativity, his own theory of uh, the way gravity behaves, uh, and works over very very large scales uh, quantum theory, which was a theory that emerged around about the same time as relativity that works well on small scales but has basically little connection with relativity the two don 't seem to be compatible and yet they both work perfectly in the you know in the areas in the realms in which they are um, which they 're best suited um, why is that why is it likely you would still be um, working on that? Because it is still one of the hottest topics in modern physics. How can you reconcile the two? And the reconciliation, really, uh, what people are looking for is a quantum theory of gravity. Um, So gravity, one of the four fundamental forces of nature, the other three are the strong and weak nuclear forces and electromagnetism. We understand those in the quantum realm. Um, the, all the particle physics experiments that are done uh, have what we call a standard model, and we can get our heads around uh, those four fundamental forces, um, and it all seems to work. But gravity has defied uh, any kind of um, you know, understanding at the quantum scale. We think there are things called gravitons, uh, subatomic particles that carry the force of gravity, but they've not they've neither been discovered, nor is there a theoretical framework that really gives you any idea where they are. And so at the moment, physics is looking uh, all the time for holes, both in relativity and quantum theory, that might indicate that, um, you know, or show us the chinks in in our understanding that might uh, show where we might go to try and further replicate what's going on here. Um, that those, that big question about the reconciliation of uh, of quantum theory and relativity is also the basis of trying to understand dark matter and dark energy. So all these problems are folded exactly into that. And uh, Peter, I'm sure Einstein would, would still want to work on that problem if he was alive today. It's a great question and uh, uh, with, I think, a really interesting answer.
2: Yes, indeed, and, uh, uh, yeah, because I, 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 I suppose another thing that he might want to try and do is prove himself wrong. Yes, that's uh, with right. relativity. Oh, that's right. Well, in a way,
3: you know, uh, any, uh, as soon as we start finding um, gaps in our understanding of relativity or quantum theory, which is how this work has got to go, if you're going to advance it, then in a sense you are... Uh, you are proving einstein wrong but uh, uh he's been pretty damn right so far uh, relativity works to within one part in i think 10 to the 23 or something like that it is just astoundingly accurate quantum theory likewise and yet they they they're not you know they're not telling us the same story they're not reconcilable
2: yeah fascinating all right um thank you peter from dyslexia in the uk we um we appreciate the question there probably is a place called dyslexia fred but they probably say it backwards well that's
3: right and our software uh, translation software would probably not cope with it again
2: either i very much doubt that it would but at least it tries just like we do and it gives us adequate answers as well just like we do but uh, yeah, appreciate your um, your question, Peter and uh, Bobby. Thanks for sending those in today, and we are going to uh, get through as many questions as possible in coming weeks. And again, urging you to use the audio option on uh, our Space Nuts um, podcast website, space nuts Uh There's a little um, tab there called AMA and if you click on that uh, you can see how it all works. It's really quite simple. Uh, be a part of the show basically and um, just uh, if you've got a microphone plugged into whatever device you listen to us on, all you have to do is hit start recording and say, hi, I'm Joe Bloggs from Connecticut and I have a question about general relativity and go from there what's going to happen now is we're going to get 15 questions about general relativity I imagine but uh, there it is that's how it is or you can do it the old-fashioned way and send it to us by letter with a stamp make sure you've got enough money to pay for it these days or you can email us or message us or whatever way works for you to send us uh, the questions through I do hunt for them because I know they pop up in some weird places but uh, most of the time I, I do find them and I send them all to Fred and he goes, "Oh well, that's rubbish. Well, oh, that's rubbish too. And we don't do any. No, we do like your questions. And as I uh, mentioned at the head of the program, we are going to dedicate probably episode two hundred and fifteen to audience questions entirely because we haven't done that for a long time, and we've got a bit of catching up to do. But that doesn't mean stop sending them because we do love to hear from you, and we do love to hear your voices too, don't we, Fred? It's always fun. It's great. Yep. <laughs> Thank you. Mm, Thank you. All right." I- Thank you to everybody. I think. uh, Sorry, I keep talking all over you. It's quite all right. (laughs) Finished. Well, you know, you've got a damn chicken talking all over, so I might. Yeah, you might as well. Uh, so anyway, we're going to wrap it up for another week. Uh, thank you, Fred, as always. Oh, by the way, if you're a patron, uh, we ha- uh, whether that's through Patreon or Supercast, we've got some more bonus material coming your way very, very soon, perhaps even right now. So listen out for that. Uh, Fred, uh, thank you, and we will catch up uh, again real soon. Sounds great, Andrew. Take care. Look after yourself. Watch out for those chickens. Indeed. Uh, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large here on Space Nuts along with Gregory Peck. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, farewell. We'll see you next time on another edition of the Space Nuts podcast.
0: Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available
1: at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at bytes.com. This has been
0: another quality Podcast production from fights.com
3: He's pretty um, he's pretty feisty as well, is Gregory. If you go and try and chase him away, he's, he's just as likely to take take a pot shot at you with his beak. <laughs> Should I just try and move him off the veranda then? See... Oh, if
2: you want to, yeah. Where are you?
3: <laughs> that was a complete failure.
2: <laughs> oh, okay.
3: Well, at least you try. He's right outside the door. That's why he's so loud. Uh, I don't want
0: to push him off because I don't want to hurt him, but...